G'day, I'm Rowan Mackey, and I'm joined by my dad, clinical psychologist Chris Mackey, and this is Psych Spiels and Silver Linings. G'day, Dad. How are you doing today? Good, thanks, Rowan. Good to be with you again. Good to be with you as always, and, and good to be with you for today's topic, which is a fascinating topic. We've called today's episode The Intolerance of Irrational Ideas. So, Dad, do you want to just give us a bit of a brief overview at first? What are we going to be chatting about today? Okay, well, the main thing is we're talking about the legacy of Albert Ellis, who developed Rational Emotive Therapy, or RET. And so we had that recent episode on the ABC of CBT, Cognitive Behavioural Therapy, and we talked then about the seminal influence of Aaron Beck, who died recently at 100 years of age. But alongside Beck, there was Albert Ellis, who with RET was also conveying this understanding of the importance of our thoughts to our emotions and distress. If we're feeling distressed, rather than it being the situation itself, it's often to do with our distorted thinking in some ways, or what Ellis referred to as our irrational ideas. So we're going to be exploring what Ellis described as 10 particular irrational ideas which he believed underlay most forms of human distress. Absolutely, and I suppose in many ways, today's episode came out of the last episode that we did on Aaron Beck. Obviously, it was great to chat with Mark Grant on pain last week, but the episode before that, we had the episode, obviously, on CBT with Aaron Beck following his passing, and look, we had planned to talk a little bit about Alice in that episode, and I suppose just getting on to Beck, there's so much richness in what he had to offer that we thought, let's actually give Albert Alice his own episode in terms of, yeah, maybe he deserved a little bit more than a passing mention so after having that great chat with Mark last week we thought we'd close off the loop in terms of Alison Beck and basically learn a little bit more about the other half of the I suppose yeah the duo who who founded CBT. Yes because like Beck Ellis was really interested in stoic philosophy and the potential benefit of that in managing with different kinds of distress and in particular in terms of irrational ideas and how there is a kind of intolerance or lack of tolerance that goes with these irrational ideas that Ellis identified. He talked about how we could get into difficulty with words or thoughts like should, have to or must, I must do this, they should have done that, we have to do this, this is terrible, this should have turned out differently. What he called this black and white absolutist kind of thinking. Also something he referred to as masturbation. (laughs) I must this, they should that. And he was pointing out how, like Epictetus said, it's not so much that people are disturbed by things, but by their view of them. That 2,000 or 2,500 years ago kind of philosophy There's such relevance of that to everyday life and watching out for these kinds of black and white rigid kind of thoughts. And Ellis had a particularly direct way of getting at these kinds of thoughts. Well, he absolutely did, and we might even get into a little bit about that later because he's a a fascinating figure, Alice, and and yeah, had the pleasure of seeing a few of his videos throughout the week, and quite a character, Alice, and and I will put up some of those videos on the episode page for today at psychspiels.com.au, so yeah, feel free to check those out and get a bit of a sense of it yourself, but one of the things I was really interested in one of those videos that I saw, Dad, and I reckon you'd be able to explain this a little bit better than myself, but basically he talked about... His innovative idea in many ways, it was an idea that I suppose he not necessarily came up with, but I suppose came back to, related to Stoic philosophy. And that was how I suppose people are an ABC model as opposed to an AC model. 
wonder if you could just give us a bit of a brief explanation about what the ABC versus the AC model is. Okay, well, an ABC model is a core of cognitive therapy and cognitive behavioural therapy. So Beck had very similar views on this. And the general idea is often when people feel distressed, they think it's because something that happened. I've experienced this loss or I had a car accident or someone stole something from me or I failed an exam. Why do I feel depressed? Because I failed an exam. The A, the activating event, leads to C, the emotional consequences of failing the exam and maybe being despondent or withdrawing and maybe feeling less inclined to do further study. Oh, it's because I failed an exam. But what Ellis, as well as Beck, pointed out is there's a B in the middle of the A, B, C. And that is, it's not the activating event, it's not the event itself, the situation that leads us to react a certain way. It's our beliefs about the situation. So it's what we believe about the fact that I failed this exam. Does that mean that I'm no good as a student? Does that mean I'm not cut out for this particular kind of course? Does that mean that I'm useless or I'm never going to get anywhere? Like we can imagine how the thoughts can become more exaggerated, so to speak. And so Ellis was very attuned to this. And so he looked, as Beck did, to encourage people to counter those thoughts, to identify these kinds of beliefs that could be undermining to our well-being and to dispute them, to dispute the idea that I must pass every exam to prove I'm a competent person or that I can't stand the fact that I failed or I'm never going to get anywhere. To be able to dispute those kind of thoughts and to recognise this might be unfortunate, it might be frustrating, it might be disappointing, we would have greatly preferred to have passed that exam. There might be some negative consequences from it, but it's not the end of the world. That's not a direct measure of my worth as a person. Yeah, the general idea of disputing those kinds of negative thoughts, and then it would lead to a different kind of effect. So rather than someone being perhaps depressed, they're more likely to be disappointed or frustrated. Rather than someone being really angry with someone else because, oh, they should have done this or or they should have treated me so differently from how they did, when we might get very angry and distressed and upset about a situation, we might be more irritated or frustrated, but in a sense, our emotions won't get away from us quite as much. So very much Ellis, like Beck, was looking to help us take that little bit more control over our reactions and realise that we could do something about our thinking and watch out for black and white exaggerated thoughts, like the overgeneralised thoughts that we talked about last time, the absolute black and white thinking kind of thoughts. Well, I think it's such an important point, that, Dad, and it actually reminds me of an episode of the TV show The Inbetweeners, where basically they've gone along to a theme park, this group of friends, and they're at the front of the line to go on a roller coaster. Basically, the attendant for the roller coaster, right as they're ready to jump on, they've been waiting for ages, the attendant says, look, we've actually chosen someone to go in front of you. I think it might have even been the last ride of the day sort of thing. So they're just absolutely frustrated. And so this fella, basically one of the, the main guys, starts going off at the attendant, basically saying, you know, what are you doing? We've waited so long. This is a complete injustice, just completely going off his rocker. And, and, and then the attendant basically turns around and, and sort of very timidly leads up a couple of disabled people to, to basically go in front of him on the roller coaster. And then he's sort of hit with the realisation that he's basically going off his rocker 
in order to justify, I suppose, robbing these people of the experience that they would have really enjoyed at the end of their day. And so it completely changes the situation from him that it's been this incredibly inflamed, you know, angry situation that he's been in. But then he realises that there's actually so much more to it uh, and that when he takes a bit more of a broader view... Uh, it, that obviously is completely, you know, it completely dissipates all of his negative energy towards it. So I suppose what that, you know, makes me realise in, in that situation is that potentially there can be so many more situations that if we do, whether it be add an extra layer or dispute it, as you're saying, if we if we look at it in a certain way that challenges that way of thinking then well, it can potentially lead us to think about things through a completely different prism at times. Yes, and that's something which can be quite freeing, realising that it's not the things that happen to us, and even as we talked about with Mark Grant about pain, even if we have some kind of physical injury, there's still a lot of influence that we can have about our perspective, our worldview in dealing with that, and that can make a big difference to our emotions and even our level of experience of pain. So there's a lot that we can influence by the way that we manage what's between our ears, so to speak. And so, again, Ellis had a very direct way of helping us with that. And one of the things that I find interesting about some of that sort of stuff is that one thing that you see today with, whether it be, I don't know if you necessarily, I suppose you call them entrepreneurs or, you know, I hesitate to use the word kind of influencers, but you basically, you see people online in a whole range of industries, really, you know, a lot of them, whether it be to do with business and all this sort of thing, but they dabble in psychology a little bit. You know, even the Gary Vaynerchuks of the world, the Tim Robbins, these sorts of people. And and to me, one of the things that they almost tap into is that idea that you can really dispute some of these ingrained beliefs in some ways and that we do have a little bit more agency over the ability to do that. And, you know, I just find it interesting and, and you know a little bit hilarious at sometimes when you look at some of this sort of stuff in psychology and you kind of go that you know that sounds great and then you look at what these guys are doing and it is so derivative to the point where it's sort of going oh this is pretty basic in terms of the the level of psychology but people absolutely eat it up in terms of you know tony robbins gary Vee, oh, these guys are huge around the world and i'll look at some of this sort of stuff and go they clearly recognized a little bit of that and that's obviously sort of one area that, you know, it's influenced today. It's almost spread from psychology. But I know, Dad, like in Australia, I think RET is something that has basically almost had a, a particular influence in, in Australian psychology as well. I was actually on a, on a webinar this morning that looked at a little bit at RET with David Cherry as well, another psychologist too. So it, it is interesting how prominent this way of thinking is. Yes, certainly. When I started work in 1980 at Geelong Hospital, one of the main things that I went by was Albert Ellis's book, The New Guide to Rational Living, because it was very helpful at helping identify the kind of thoughts that people could have that would get into difficulty. And I found it very helpful to be guided in that direction by Ian Campbell, who was the senior lecturer then of the clinical master's course, the clinical psychology course at Melbourne University. And that was one of the first few clinical master's courses in Australia and many prominent psychologists today, including David Cherry that you mentioned earlier, were trained in that course. 
And that's had a huge influence throughout Australia with many of the graduates from that course. Actually, I should mention as an aside, we've got this book here, A New Guide to Rational Living, which was, to me, one of the Bibles I referred to in 1980. I was just looking at the front cover and it doesn't look quite so new now, does it? It's very much um, a 70s fluffy hair look, I think, going back to that time. And actually, the first edition was in 1961. So this is the updated photo, but it looks uh, decidedly dated now. Absolutely, yeah. Well, I was laughing about that before. It's the new guide to rational living. It's, it's one of the oldest books I've seen in a little while, Dad. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> Bit so, doggy, it isn't it? So yeah. So obviously, you know, Ellis obviously didn't quite realise the uh, the impact of the ideas that he was onto. He's the thinking, longevity of it. Exactly. Oh, you know, maybe maybe needs to update. It. I don't know. Where, where do you go from new? The new <laughs> new guide or, or something like that. But uh, it is interesting, Dad, the uh, the influence that Alice did have, particularly in Australia, and and I suppose one of the things that interests me about Alice is, in some ways, his divergence from Freud. He, it seems to me, picked up on some of the things that Freud was saying about the impact of early childhood, but it's not as if he just accepted those ideas. And you know, I, saw, I actually saw a, a hilarious little sort of extract with Alice where he was saying about. I think he actually started doing psychodynamic therapy and, you know, he did it for about six years and he just sort of, he's talking about it and he just seems so exasperated, just sort of saying, oh, we're just talking about, you know, all these irrelevant experiences from people's childhood and, you know, the notion of it is, you know, I'm just sitting there so bored and these people are just, you know, going on about here, you know, basically everything sort of thing and he's just going, well, why why don't we just cut to the chase and why don't we just talk about, you know, the stuff that makes the difference and, you know, the way that he's saying it is so kind of exasperated and, you know, almost bored in some ways. But but then you kind of think about it and, you know, the 1960s, they were, these would have been incredibly challenging and profound ideas in some ways in terms of to almost go to Freud. Hold on, you know, I don't necessarily think you've got the whole picture. It's quite a, yeah, it's quite a profound sort of step to take in psychology. Yes, well, both Beck and Ellis were trained in psychoanalytic therapy, so they actually had a very solid background in that, but both of them thought it could be somewhat inefficient, at times impractical at getting at the main kind of difficulties that people had. So as you said, they looked to cut to the chase. And one of the ways that Ellis did that is outlining 10 irrational ideas that he thought were the core of people's emotional distress. Well, let's get into some of those ideas now, because it is the core of RET in some ways. So let's start with, Dad, a rational idea number one. We might go through these and then maybe have a little bit of a discussion about each one in a little bit of detail. So a rational idea, number one, the idea that it is a dire necessity for any adult human to be loved or approved by virtually every significant other person in his community. Do you want to just describe a little bit for us how that is an irrational belief? Okay, now this is one of the more common ones because it can be behind social anxiety and avoidance that we've talked about before. And one of the problems is the emphasis on the notion of necessity or need for approval because as Ellis emphasised, the word need, basically when you look at its language roots, it means you need it to survive. It's necessary for life. So in the first instance, it's a very exaggerated kind of notion. I need other people's approval and that's going to lead us to be very sensitive to any form of well disapproval or invalidation or if someone looks at us sideways or has a tone of voice we don't like. And the other emphasis on that is if we feel we need approval from virtually every significant other person. Because then, well, 
what do we have to do? Do we have to be some kind of chameleon to shapeshift to fit someone's preferences of how we might act so we get their approval? Then we're not in a position to be as free to have our own ways or thoughts or ways of looking at things if we feel like we need to fit in with others. We're not going to be able to assert ourselves as well. Uh, The second of the rational idea is that one should be thoroughly competent adequate and achieving in all possible respects if one is to consider oneself worthwhile. So, Dad, do you want to maybe give us a bit of an idea how this is an irrational idea and and maybe how this can give us a bit of distress? Well, it can get back to perfectionism, can't it? That idea about trying to be masterful or expecting oneself to be masterful in all areas. Nobody's going to be fantastic at everything they do. And there might be certain areas of tasks that we do that we don't have to be great at it you know 80% well might be enough in some areas but the other thing is the idea of rating ourselves or valuing ourselves our worth on our performance or our achievements if we get confused between how we perform in a situation and our worth as a person we're going to run into difficulty and be really frustrated or upset with ourselves just because we maybe made a mistake or slipped up in some way or it might be failing an exam or something like that. It doesn't mean that we're stupid. It doesn't mean that we're less worthy as a human being. So it's watching out for those exaggerated expectations of ourselves. And that one reminds me of that great scene from that show, Ted Lasso, Dad, which I know you and you and I have both really enjoyed. But uh, it's basically where the, the fellow is coming towards the end of his football career. He's basically, you know, he's thinking, oh, what am I going to be worth when I'm finished football? This whole thing that I've lent my identity on for so long, it's not going to be there anymore. Who am I going to be? And his partner basically points out, I think it's his niece, his little niece who's there with him at the time. She sort of says, oh, you know, explain your uncle to me. She says, oh, he's he's funny and he's kind and, you know, he takes me for ice cream and sort of things like this. And none of them relate to football. So so that just helps him to completely reframe exactly how he's thinking of himself in that situation. Yes, and I think sometimes there can be a downside in our education system at times overemphasising achievement in terms of marks and performance that way. We see that at this time of year with people doing their VCE exams and university final exams. The pressures that people can face on them with that, sometimes there's an overemphasis on achievement as though that's a measure of our worth. And Dad, the third irrational idea, which is linked to the second irrational idea, and that's that uh, certain people are bad, wicked or villainous and that they should be severely blamed and punished for their villainy. So it seems to me that in some ways this irrational idea is almost the external application of irrational idea number two, which is a little bit more upon ourselves. Yes, it can be these rigid expectations of other people. And so Ellis, in his colourful way, uses these notions of how people should be severely blamed and punished for their villainy. He's looking to get us to pay attention to our language and the tone of our language and how exaggerated it would be. And as he described... Well, we are influenced by other circumstances. We are influenced by things that have happened. We are somewhat influenced by our upbringing. We are influenced by maybe factors that people don't know why we've acted in an irritable way or or maybe done something thoughtless or slipped up somehow. And the problem is if people get very rigid in their judgment of others about that because then rather than the other person upsetting us, As Ellis would say, well, we're making ourselves upset if we think, oh, that's terrible, they should never act like that. Oh, this person cut me off in traffic. Even if you nearly had an accident, if we're fuming about that, 
and preoccupied about that, like, say, half an hour later, well, we're just getting ourselves really upset rather than really any great benefit coming from just staying angry because of that kind of language in our heads. And I think that's a really good one to look at as well because it seems to me to highlight some of the ideas about RET and the ideas about us disputing some of our belief systems in this way. And it reminds me of a quote actually from one of my favourite books, uh, The Gulag Archipelago it's called, by Alexander Solzhenitsyn. And he has a line basically, you know, this was someone who basically spent time in the, the Soviet gulags in the prison system in the Soviet Union and, and had a horrible few years under Stalin, basically as a prisoner. And, and he has this line that says, the line between good and evil strikes through the heart of every person. And to me, that, that is such a profound line because there's going to be situations where, you know, some people, you know, may seem, you know, black and white bad in, and, you know, in other situations people might seem black and white good, but I think it highlights that maybe we're all a little bit, you know, a bit of column A, a bit of column B in some ways and, and that there's no one who's, you know, infallible and there's no one who's so deeply flawed that they, I suppose, are evil to, to everyone's perspective. You know, what's that thing about, you know, Hitler really liked dogs? So clearly even he had some, I hesitate to call them redeeming qualities, let's call them... Uh, more humane characteristics. <laughs> yes, and I like that quote, and it reminds me of how Jung emphasised that we all have our shadow side. So the downside of being really intolerant and judgmental of others in the long run will basically be causing ourselves more distress and not really doing much to influence the other person. And Dad, a rational idea number four, and that is the idea that it is awful and catastrophic when things are not the way one would very much like them to be. I think this is uh, potentially, you know, something that, that we see a little bit more of maybe politically in terms of as, uh, as things get a little bit more crazy in the world, it's going to be a little bit harder for them to be, you know, the way that some people like them to be. And I think we've seen maybe a little bit of a response to that. But it's an interesting idea all the same. And I think one that we can look at and, and maybe gain something from at an individual level as well. Yes. And so like Beck emphasised, watch out for catastrophizing. Oh, this is awful, this is terrible, I can't stand it. And it gets back to that Epictetus quote, that we're not so much disturbed by what happens, but how we view them. So watch out for our language. Yes, that might be very frustrating. Yes, that situation might have turned out very differently from what I preferred. I would have liked it to have gone a lot better. So naturally I could be quite frustrated or disappointed by that, but I don't have to make myself miserable by saying how terrible it is and I can't stand it. So it's watching out for that extra exaggerated, if you like, again, that intolerance in our emotions because we'll end up suffering if we think, oh, that just shouldn't happen, it's too terrible, it's too awful, I'm just over it. It's watching out for that language that's actually more impactful often than the situation itself. Well, Dad, I think that was highlighted to me very well on the way down here today when I was driving on the highway and there was a fella in a, in a big old ute and he's driving about a metre behind me. This is going over the Westgate Bridge too. So his camera's all around and I'm, you know, sitting on the speed limit. He's basically, you know, flashing his lights and he's very close to the back of my car. And I'm, you know, I'm thinking there's no way I'm speeding up here past the cameras just because, you know, you're having a bad day, mate, sort of thing. And so, he, you know, he's eventually sort of sped round me and, and gone past and he's weaving in and out of traffic. And we've gone up a couple of kilometres and, you know, maybe five minutes later and the cars bunch up a little bit. 
And there he is about three cars ahead, sort of, I think he's weaved so much that he's, you know, not necessarily got, got further in front of himself. So to me, that, that struck me as such a situation that, you know, maybe he thought was a little bit catastrophic, not kind of getting there in time. And the way that he was acting, it was certainly as if it was a catastrophe, but oh, I promise you, you know, just sitting on the speed limit, you only... You're only going to end up three cars worse. So, yeah, it's certainly one situation that maybe we can look at and think, yeah, maybe not so catastrophic. Yeah, and you wonder what someone's going to do to their own blood pressure if they're going to be driving like that. But by the same token, we don't need to unnecessarily elevate our own blood pressure by getting overly worked up about that. What is, no doubt, a somewhat irritating and frustrating situation, but we don't have to view it as disastrous or get ourselves completely worked up about it. Well, I think there actually is some research linking road rage to heart disease in terms of when people are getting angry in the car as regular as people who suffer from road rage are, they're more likely to suffer heart attacks and and heart disease, which obviously is, is not a good thing to go through. But the thing that that leads me to think is what else is that extending to in terms of what other situations we may be getting a little bit angry in that's just really not helping the situation because, you know, we can't necessarily do much about it. Maybe it's better to just, yeah, sort of accept it for what it is and look at how we can just muddle through it. Yeah, that's a real point. If we find ourselves getting unnecessarily frustrated in some situations, that's part of the idea of CBT and RET, just becoming more sensitised to the kind of thinking that we might have that might contribute to that. Because if we're getting worked up in traffic, we might also be getting unnecessarily worked up about, say, family members' behaviour or, again, something that turned out differently from what we want. And it gets back to that idea of the shoulds, doesn't it? Thinking, oh, this shouldn't happen like this. That's what will tend to make us angry and frustrated more than the circumstance itself. Well, I think that really lends us well to the next irrational idea, Dad, number five, and that's the idea that human unhappiness is externally caused and that people have little or no ability to control their sorrows and disturbances. So this leads me to think, Dad, of the episode that we did supporting a sense of agency, which seems to relate to this irrational idea. Very much so. This idea of external cause, and that can certainly lead to, for example, relationship difficulties. It could be in family relationship. It could be in marital relationships. The person might think, I feel bad because of what the other person has said or done. I'm distressed because of how my neighbour acted or this dispute I'm having with someone. And this idea of external cause, it gives away that influence or, dare I say, more partial control over our reactions in certain ways. It often involves making black and white judgments about other people, so that villain idea, or making black and white moral judgments, which, when it boils down to it, things often aren't quite as black and white as they seem. Someone else might have had some extra reasons for acting in a certain way that we don't like, and if we don't make allowance for that, we're going to tend to get ourselves more worked up. But if I think in terms of situations itself, like external events lead us to feel a certain way. Again, I think it's really interesting that Ellis highlighted that external events can lead to discomfort or deprivation, like physical discomfort, but it can even with physical pain, as Mark Grant described in that last episode, that how we react to physical pain has got a lot to do with our perspective on situations, how we would tend to view it, also our mood and emotions that we can influence in other ways. 
So there are seven of nine of the brain areas related to the experience of pain are to do with emotions, which again is linked with our perspective or our thinking. There are only two areas of our brain out of the nine with pain that result from actually that external cause, if you like, the actual sensory messages coming, for example, our broken arm, for example. So even then, even something which seems as, if you like, as externally caused as physical pain, now, even that is modulated and moderated, is mediated by our thoughts. So it gets back to that central notion we're not so much disturbed by things that happen, but by what we tell ourselves about them. I'm always struck by uh, reading Viktor Frankl's stuff because he is just one of, you know, to my eye anyway, one of the strongest, most resilient humans who's ever existed in some ways. And for him to, you know, he's someone who basically was taken by the Nazis in World War II and put in a concentration camp. I think it might have even been Auschwitz concentration camp. So as horrible of a way to be treated by anyone as, you know, any human basically in history has been. And, and he has that quote that says, everything can be taken from us but one thing, the last of the human freedoms to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. And for him to be able to come up with that in the set of circumstances that he was in, you know, he's much more of an authority than I feel I ever will be on choosing one's own set of psychological circumstances, I feel. And for him to have come up with that quote, to me it gives a lot of hope anyway for, for the control that we do have over these things. Yes, that philosophy is the basis of a therapy approach called logotherapy, which came from Viktor Frankl's work. But just knowing that he lived through that and was able to demonstrate that way of responding, of having that sense of agency to manage his own reactions to it, to survive as well as he did, to go on and spawn this form of therapy, which remains very influential around the world, that really says something about the power that can come from us taking a certain more, if you like, uplifting perspective. Absolutely, yeah. Pretty hard to argue with, I think, someone coming from his position. But, Dad, the next idea, a rational idea number six, the idea that if something is or may be dangerous or fearsome, one should be terribly concerned about it and should keep dwelling on the possibility of its occurring. So how is it that this is an irrational idea and can maybe give us a bit of trouble? Well, that thinking certainly tends to exaggerate or exacerbate our anxiety reactions. So as we've talked about before, when people are experiencing some anxiety-based condition, often the difficulty that people have most is anxiety about the anxiety. For example, people feeling very anxious about the prospect of having a panic attack. Or the idea of anticipatory anxiety, as Ella said, terribly concerned and should keep dwelling on the possibility of its occurring. So many people are going to be much more distressed about, for example, the prospect of going to the dentist if they have a dental phobia than if they're actually there. And so the focus on the distress will just tend to exaggerate it. Whereas if we think of what anxiety or fear in particular relates to, it's looking to alert us to a challenging or threatening situation and first of all, it's inviting us to consider, can we do something about it? Can we do something to alleviate this situation or address it where there's not so much threat or danger? That's helped our survival. But it also helps us to recognise when we're getting into a pattern of worry, where the worry isn't helping anything. It might be concerns about exams coming up or a difficult conversation that we're going to have with someone. To take that example, 
if we have a difficult conversation coming up, you mentioned David Cherry. He has a very good way of describing this. In that situation, consider what your positive purpose is. Think of what you're going to try and get out of the situation and have one or two modest goals, such as maybe clearing the air with someone or getting more of an understanding about an aspect of what you want to discuss. Rather than focus on how anxiety-provoking it might be or how difficult it would be if the person disapproves of you, when we focus our attention on what we might do, again, that sense of agency, without the exaggerated focus or thoughts on the anxiety that goes with it, we tend to be a lot more effective. Well, they're all really good examples, Dad. I suppose one example that comes to mind for me there, and I think this is quite an extreme example, but I think it highlights exactly what you're saying there. And I've got a good friend who grew up in South Korea, and he you know, lived there to, to the end of primary school. I think he was about 12 or 13 years old when he moved to Australia. And I remember one time talking to him about the relationship between South Korea and North Korea. And he was sort of saying, you know, very matter-of-factly, the regularity at which... North Korea would threaten Seoul, the capital of South Korea, which I think is only, you know, it's less than 100 kilometres away from the border of North Korea. So, you know, potentially in a, in a military situation, it's not a good place to be, to be that close to a, to a hostile enemy in some ways. But, but my friend was saying that when he was over there, you know, I was like, how was it to live in these circumstances, you know? It's potentially bombs kind of being dropped in any second. And, and he was sort of saying, well, actually... It's not so much like that because, you know, the situation is, look, if they're going to do it, they're going to do it. <laughs> and, you know, you probably don't have much choice in it and it might not be a, you know, a hugely pleasant experience when it happens. But at the same time, you know, you're probably not going to know about it for too long in terms of, you know, a bomb being dropped on a city of that size is, is going to, you know, do some damage and make its mark sort of thing. So the notion of what he was getting across is that for people in Seoul, you can't live in fear of this potentiality that, that may or may not happen and that, you know, even if it's the, you know, the 25th threat this week and it's, you know, it's a, it's a legitimate threat and it, it is anxiety-provoking, I think on some level what the people of Seoul have realised is that you just can't live your life in those circumstances. And to me that's what that irrational idea highlights is that we, yeah, almost have to get a little bit in front of the curve in some ways and kind of think, well, is you know, being overly anxious about this, you know, potentially is that even going to, you know, allow me or not allow me to respond as well in a situation that I might need all of my facilities for and all this sort of thing. So, yeah, but, but that was certainly something that came to mind for me as, as a maybe extreme example of, of that rational idea. Yes, and the level of fear and concern that many people had, understandably in many ways, but it could be exaggerated, around the threat of nuclear war in the Cold War era of the 1960s, 70s and 80s, that notion of mutually assured destruction. But again, as Robert Lay would describe with worry, we're likely to mainly get benefit from some level of worry or concern, like actually thinking over a situation, if it's a very serious situation, if there might be dire consequences in the near future, and if we can do something about it. So exaggerated fretting about the threat of nuclear war year after year for decades would not really get anyone very far. We can still think of something like climate change, for example. Some people could say, oh, that's a bit remote. Well, we already see signs of the impact of that, and so it is worth doing things in the shorter term, in the immediate term, and planning for the longer term. 
But by the same token, we don't have to focus our thoughts on that the whole time. We can still look at other things that are going well in our lives and areas where we have a sense of agency, but also look to do something about that so we can feel that we're doing something constructive about that as well, rather than just cogitating over negative thoughts. Well, I think climate change is a really good example for the next irrational idea that we're going to talk about, Dad. And that's the idea that it's easier to avoid than to face certain life difficulties and self-responsibility. So obviously, you know, climate change is a huge example of this. But at the same time, you know, if we do nothing about it, then it will grow up on us very quickly as a, a much more imminent threat than it even is at this stage. So, yeah, to me, that suggests that, yeah, we do need to employ a little bit of longer-term thinking, even if we are just being a bit self-preservationist about things. Oh, yeah, I'll look at that and really do think that maybe is a little bit irrational, that, you know, taking the easy way out, it, it actually does get a bit harder in the long run if you do do that all the time. Yes, and if we think of that even in a simpler everyday way, let's think in terms of procrastination. So why do we procrastinate? So we might be feeling uncomfortable about the prospect of having to motivate ourselves or do something which is maybe uncomfortable or will take a little while to do. But as Ellis emphasised, there's a problem of low frustration tolerance, or LFT, as he'd mentioned it. If we give in to the idea of, oh, no, that's a little bit difficult, well, we know what can happen when we procrastinate. Something still stays in our mind. There's some negative consequences from not having done something sooner rather than later. In the long run, it's often worth doing. And at a broader level, if people think of some of the more satisfying experiences that they've had in life or things that they feel happy about that they've done or proud of, a lot of these things will be difficult to do. And so it might be going out of the comfort zone in different ways, studying for a course, beginning a new business, maybe making an extra effort with family members or home responsibilities or looking to get on with people in certain kind of ways. A number of situations involving a level of self-responsibility, there might be some level of challenge at the time, but ultimately... Often, if we realise that something's worth doing, there can be positive consequences from it. It might be uncomfortable, but to be prepared to go through that discomfort, often there'll be much greater rewards at the end of it. And I think the thing about that as well is that so often, you know, you can avoid certain things for a certain amount of time and then, you know, you eventually do have to face them, but, you know, potentially they've just got a little bit of, you know, a little bit more sludge on them from having avoided them for so long. So, yeah, Absolutely. Yes, and look, actually, that's one thing that comes up often in therapy. Often progress in therapy involves people going out of the comfort zone. That includes for exposure for phobias. Like, for example, people might have a needle phobia. Well, that's a challenging kind of situation to face, but we have that at the moment. A number of people will have faced that. For example, they would have had a vaccine, which will give them more freedom in different ways. Some people might think, oh, look, it's easier to put that off but that might lead to greater difficulties down the track. Or just say with OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. It's difficult if people feel a compulsion to wash their hands and then if they're trying to resist that compulsion. But by the same token, if people face that discomfort, that challenge, in the long run, life becomes a little bit easier to face through that, dare I say, exaggerated anxiety. Again, there are benefits often in the long run rather than avoiding a difficult situation where it can tend to continue. And the eighth irrational idea, Dad, and that is the idea that one should be dependent on others and need someone stronger than oneself on whom to rely. 
So how, how does this relate to an irrational idea that maybe should be avoided? Now, this is an interesting one, that notion of dependence on others, because I think that's something which has culturally shifted since Ellis first wrote about that. So I think we see less of those dependent patterns, certainly in therapy, than we might have at times in the past. And part of this is in dealing with depression, for example. There's a lot of emphasis on assertiveness therapy, the notion of people needing to identify their needs and wants and looking to act with some sense of agency to pursue that. And I think culturally, just say with the rise of feminism and say women's liberation as they called it, the notion of more freedom and choice, the notion that it's best if people can develop themselves as individuals and not in a sense be subservient to others or or focusing excessively on meeting others' needs or wants that way. So I think that one has shifted to some extent, but a number of people do show stronger, if you like, dependent traits where it makes it difficult for them to address a conflict differently or speak up and express a different want or preference and people in that situation are more likely to become depressed. Well, it's interesting you talk about it having changed a bit since even Alice was writing about these sorts of things because the person who immediately comes to mind for me there is Dylan Alcott who, you know, wheelchair tennis player, he's won the Grand Slam, he's won the gold medal in the same year. Like, the man is just an absolute champion on the court. But it's almost off the court, the things that Dylan's doing, that really, I suppose, gives him the the value as a, as a, as a person in society in terms of, you know, you look at that idea about not being dependent on others and, and what he's doing for people of, you know, all abilities and, you know, he's got a music festival which... I believe it was actually the first uh, music festival coming back to Melbourne, which is awesome, but it's called Ability Fest. And so it's for, you know, people of all abilities and, and through being a prominent wheelchair tennis player. So, you know, he plays a sport, but his messages are very much about helping disabled people to recognise that they have value in relationships, they have value in friendships, they have value in, you know, their opinions about things, they have value in the workplace, they have value in society more broadly. So to me, I I think we're getting around to everyone in some ways in terms of I think maybe there is a a group of people in society who could do with a little bit more acknowledgement in some ways in terms of, look, there's some practicalities about certain people's conditions where maybe they they need a little bit of help sometimes, whether it be getting shoes on or whether it be getting on and off a chair or this sort of thing. But I think the more that you look into that sort of stuff, you know, it's it's a symbiotic relationship with that person if, you know, you're in a position to care for them and to provide that support so you know you're getting as much from them as they're getting from you a lot of the time quite often it's just a little practical service that they're getting but you're getting something much more deep and profound and so yeah I think looking at that it really helps to for me anyway contextualize some of the I suppose power in what Dylan Alcott's doing and particularly for for that group in society but also for everyone else because you know we all benefit from having everyone included in that way I think. Yes, that's a very good point how our attitudes have changed a lot towards disability. And so, well, I suppose the advent of the NDIS, an agency which is also looking to help people gain employment as well as work around the difficulties that they have. Yes, we've got very different expectations now, don't we, that people might have certain kind of disabilities or limitations in some ways and yet can still have opportunities or should still have opportunities for that sense of agency. That's a real cultural shift. Definitely. And now, Dad, if you look at uh, irrational idea number nine, 
And that's the idea that one's past history is an all-important determiner of one's present behaviour and that because something once strongly affected one's life, it should indefinitely have a similar effect. So I suppose this is in some ways what we've been talking about these last couple of episodes and even looking at things like quantum physics. To me, part of what that suggests is that, you know, we're not predisposed to for example, feeling negatively about a situation that we've once felt negatively about. We do have the power to, for example, gain something from something which may have once appeared, you know, pretty black and white negative. Yes, and so there's certainly been a huge shift in terms of how we see that potential for, again, choice and agency beyond past influences. And so one area was the psychoanalytic field, which it didn't say exactly that what happened in the first six years of life would absolutely determine what happened from there, or they wouldn't have had the therapy. They saw people as potentially be able to change things, but they often saw it as being slow and laborious, and there was a very strong emphasis on the past history. So that's where... Beck and Ellis had a different emphasis of that. So they would say, yes, it might be an influence, how we were raised, the circumstances in which we were raised, what kind of things have happened. Yes, it might have some influence on our life in certain ways, but it doesn't mean that we have to continue to act in disturbed ways, even if we've developed certain kind of habits of substance abuse, for example, or unhelpful anger reactions. We don't need to try and just dismiss that as, oh, that's because I had an angry parent when I was growing up or that's because I had an accident and so I can't help acting like this. Basically, there was this notion that we've got far more choice than that might suggest. We might move past our past conditioning by, for example, looking to turn things around in a generation or change habits or or even shift our life circumstances. But I think one of the best examples of this is what in positive psychology they call post-traumatic growth. There'd often been an emphasis in clinical psychology in the mental health field on post-traumatic stress. Well, for example, if soldiers have experienced combat, there'd be 25% of them who would have a post-traumatic stress disorder, another 25% maybe subclinical for that. And almost seeing it as a bit like a fait accompli, Well, not necessarily. And there are treatments that can make a difference. But apart from that, if we also look at the fact that many people who go through adversity will experience some silver lining that comes from that. And if we believe there could be things learnt from experiences and there are positives that can come from it and there are silver linings, if we look at it more in that way and then if we use what's called, say, a growth mindset, what can I learn from this? How can I develop in a positive direction further? How might I change this habit or behaviour rather than a fixed mindset? Oh, I'm damaged by this. I'm damaged by what happens. Oh, I've been conditioned to act this way. I can't help it because I'm in this setting. A lot of it is to do with the way we explain our circumstances to ourselves, And so Beck and Ellis together would try to help us have more sense of freedom and agency realising it's a lot to do with how we construe these situations. We don't have to be a victim. We can learn from our experience. We can shift our future directions. And the last irrational idea that we'll cover, Dad, is the idea that one should become quite upset over other people's problems and disturbances. So, again, potentially one that we maybe do see a little bit still these days. It's not necessarily like idea number eight that we've we've maybe starting to move on from a little bit i think we 
we maybe do see this a little bit. People, you know, getting getting upset on behalf of other people without even necessarily talking to them in the first place, and and all this sort of stuff. So, can you just expand for us how this irrational idea maybe can get us into a little bit of trouble psychologically? Yes, I think this is a core one, one of the most fundamental ones, because it's about the word should. I've said before, I think the word should causes more distress than any other word in the English language. And Ellis emphasises that with this idea number 10, the irrational idea number 10, that one should become quite upset over other people's problems and disturbances. They shouldn't act like this. That's terrible they've done that. How dare they? They must do this. If we think, well, they must do this, well, they would have. The word must doesn't fit. That's like playing God. They should do this. Well, if it's that they should, if the world ordains that that person should have acted in that way, if evolution, everything dictates that should happen, it would have. Things happen. We might not like it. It might be against our wishes, our preferences. But as Ella said, we don't have to repeatedly disturb ourselves by something not fitting our expectations. That's what he was emphasising with this idea of watch out for the shoulds, the must, the have-tos, the masturbation, as he called it. <laughs> well, I had a hilarious term, by the way, masturbation, but uh, I think that uh, that last one there, it is a, a very interesting one to look at as well because, to me, it highlights the connection between some of these irrational ideas. And, for example, you know, I look at that, the irrational idea that one should become quite upset over other people's problems and disturbances – well, in some ways, you know, that could relate to maybe an idea that a particular person is bad or wicked or, you know, just black and white negative in a certain way. Or it could relate to an idea that, you know, if things aren't the way that I want them to be, it's, it's awful and it's catastrophic. And so I wonder if you could just maybe speak to that, how potentially some of these irrational ideas can potentially even build upon each other because, you know, I, I look at it and, for example, if I'm feeling a, an emotion like anger or frustration, potentially if I look to unpack that, there could even be two, three or, you know, even maybe more than that of some of these irrational ideas sitting maybe below that emotion. Okay, well, I think actually as you raise that, I'm thinking about the circumstances we find ourselves in around the world with the coronavirus. And let's look at it at first. There's an example of a wicked problem that exists. There's no just wonderful solution to the coronavirus and then everyone goes off happy. Everyone's well and continuing their work and basically you know, life is going easily. There are all sorts of challenges that we face and there aren't always easy solutions to that. So that's one thing. If we think there should be easy solutions or it shouldn't be happening, well, we're not going to get very far, are we, thinking the coronavirus is evil or wicked and it shouldn't be there. That just leads to frustration and helplessness and just more angst, if you like. So ultimately, it gets back to acknowledging that situation is there. How might we deal with that? And that also gets back to the idea of, if you like, facing certain difficulties and responsibilities can make a difference. But then we can get into the notion of shoulds around that, about should this state have had a lockdown or shouldn't that state have had a lockdown or should these people be allowed over the border? Should everybody have to get vaccinated or is it terrible that people are expected to get vaccinated at all or there's any mandating even in health industries or whatever? There's all sorts of division. Dare I say there's a lot of intolerance that we're seeing, especially I think in recent times, around things that happen 
government decisions, other people's behaviour. There can be splits in different groups and we're seeing that a lot in Australia at the moment politically, even to the point where one politician who spoke up with a certain opinion had other politicians publicise their phone number for people to get in touch with that person and then abuse them basically. Now, that sounds very irrational to me. That's a sign of things getting out of control. It's hardly people working together to try and find some kind of ways of working through the difficulties. So I think that's where we've got different kind of notions of intolerance for different ideas or other people's preferences, a lot of shoulds about things that should be happening differently, a lot of the belief that other people's actions or government actions are externally causing me to feel a certain way. If we think of all the different complications happening with the coronavirus and if we think of our responses in all sorts of situations as relating to what's between our ears more than what's happening, then we get a very different perspective on that, I think, rather than just thinking, no, this other person or this group or this government has made me feel a certain way. Well, it is something that I think can get you into a little bit of trouble at times, Dad, in terms of, you know, thinking that we maybe even do have control over that sort of thing. And it's a pretty terse way of saying it. But, you know, what's that saying about never argue with an idiot because they'll bring you down to their level and beat you with experience? And, you know, you never want to call someone an idiot. But to me, what that suggests is that there's going to be times when people are not going to change their mind about certain things. And so if you're putting yourself in a situation where, Suppose you're worrying about, you know, whether you can change it and, you know, whether it should be a certain way and all this sort of stuff. Well, you're just not going to be able to do that in the end. So maybe it's just not the best use of time. Yes, and look, when it boils down to it, look, I can relate to that expression and the example that you mentioned in certain ways and partly it does emphasise that, look, sometimes it's not much point trying to change the other person or the external kind of situation Sometimes it's more looking at how we manage our own reaction. But I suppose underneath it all as well, I think Ellis was also reminding us as well to watch out for the intolerance in different ways. So I relate to what you said in that expression, but ultimately Ellis is reminding us as well, at the time we might think someone's an idiot, but they're going to have different kind of background reasons, experiences and all the rest of it. We can recognise we don't like the person's behaviour and all the rest of it. And again, we might have some reactions like that. The thing is not to take it too rigidly or too seriously. Well, Dad, that's the list of 10 irrational ideas that we've spoken about there. And we will put those up on the podcast page for today, uh, www.psychspills.com.au where you can access those. It is worth, I think, having another look, even just having it in front of you, and, and potentially there'll be one or two that stand out for, for some more than others. I know there's potentially a couple on there that, that are maybe a little bit more applicable for myself, Dad. But one thing that I find interesting looking at that and having spoken to you a little bit about this before is that it seems to me that a lot of those ideas relate to really three core fears in some ways. It's really three core essentially irrational beliefs or three core yeah or, or three core things that we we can be really afraid of and and they relate to a fear of disapproval a fear of discomfort and a fear of failure so do you want to just expand on this idea a little bit for us maybe about how the irrational beliefs relate to just those three core fears yes and that was largely a summary by ian campbell who had trained extensively with albert ellis and so as i said he was the 
He was the key lecturer in the Melbourne Clinical Masters course for people trading in CBT and he emphasised these things, disapproval, failure, discomfort. And I found it very helpful as a therapist, as a budding therapist in my first year or two, a whole lot of what I was looking out for was the notion of how people would deal with disapproval and that helped you get more of an understanding of, say, social anxiety and avoidance or difficulty asserting oneself. Then there'd be the notion of fears of failure, how that would come up with perfectionism and depression, and certainly the fear of discomfort, how people would be getting caught up with anxiety about anxiety or feeling anxious about being worried or feeling distressed about being depressed, that kind of thing, as opposed to finding some level of acceptance of difficulties and then working on them to a certain degree. So, yes, I think that those three core areas, fears of disapproval, exaggerated fears of failure, exaggerated fears of discomfort, if we even just pay attention to those areas when we're feeling distressed... Are there some thoughts that relate to that that come up? Is our language maybe a little bit coloured in an exaggerated way? Is it a little bit extreme? Is there a different way of looking at it that maybe maybe it's inconvenient or frustrating that things happened a certain way? Maybe we'd prefer it to be different or we'd like it if that person acted differently or if this turned out differently, but it doesn't have to be catastrophic. And even with something like COVID that we've dealt with over the last year and we continue to deal with, there have been silver linings that have come out of that. And many people would find that things haven't gone quite as terribly as they feared. I think that's very true, Dad. And, and, you know, what comes to mind for me there is, you know, one thing I've been doing recently is getting into Scottish football. And that's because, you know, Ange Postacoglu, an Australian manager, basically gone over and he's managing Celtic and, you know, huge club. And it's been this great story to follow. But, but the Scottish media are notorious for, I suppose, well, being very black and white with the way that they're thinking about things. And there was an earlier game earlier in the year where, you know, they'd lost a game and it was, must have been his third or fourth game in charge. And one of the questions was about how much of a catastrophe is this to lose this game? And he's sort of going, a catastrophe? You know, what, what are you talking about, a catastrophe? When, when I use the word catastrophe, I'm thinking very much the end of something. We're not able to continue. It's going to be, you know, it's a failure across the board. And, you know, very different situation to being four games into the year and being able to, you know, pick things up. And, and so I think he was calling them out maybe a little bit on some of that thinking. And, and I think that black and white rigid thinking is one of the things that it seems to me that maybe applies to I suppose all of these irrational beliefs in a way and you know data look you'd know this as well as anyone I suppose in our family but but anyone else out there who's maybe an older brother or an older sibling who maybe likes like myself at times to be a little bit contrarian in certain situations with my younger sisters there is not a situation that you can look at and not contradict <laughs> you know I'll, I'll put my hand up and say that even if I don't believe it at times it's been times where you think, oh, this would be this would be a bit of fun here, and and look, quite often the girls will, you know, that they'll get me in a get me on a point or get me in a situation. You sort of have to think, you know, yeah, fair play. I probably agree with you there, but at the same time, that exercise, I suppose, you know, being being an older brother in some ways, it just leads you to think that you know there there are almost no situations that you can't put a fresh lens on, even if it is just to, to get a rise out of your sisters at times. But yeah, I think that uh, that certainly comes across, I suppose, the, the black and white thinking that, that applies to all of these irrational ideas and, and maybe the power that we have to challenge some of that. 
Yes, I can certainly remember a number of heated discussions and debates <laughs> in the past that way. Unfortunately, they can stand up for themselves pretty well, your sisters. But um, when it boils down to it, I think one of the things that's coming up with this is when we look at intolerance, there's a real benefit in some tolerance of other people for ourselves, not just for them, to actually be a little bit more tolerant and understanding of others and at times them acting in ways different from what we think. We can do it out of enlightened self-interest rather than getting ourselves all worked up. And when it comes to certainly dealing with distress, like anxiety, there's a general theme, which is the goal is to tolerate anxiety, not eliminate anxiety. A lot of the difficulties we've talked about before is from feeling anxious about being anxious. So a lot of it comes back to acceptance in different ways, which is a core aspect of Stoic philosophy. Well, as you mentioned a little bit earlier, Dad, about you know everything that we've been through for the for the last eighteen months or so, you know, I, I wonder if we will see a little bit more of that, a little bit more, say, acceptance, uh, a little bit more recognition of some of these rational ideas. And I think one of the things that I find quite interesting looking through this is how it seems to me that some of them we've been able to tap into a fair bit already. But then maybe with others, they maybe haven't had quite the cut through to the mainstream as some of the other ones. You know, for example, like we talked about the idea of, you know, not being as dependent on others. The idea of individual freedoms are, you know, they're as healthy as ever in our society at the moment. But maybe there are some other of the irrational beliefs that haven't had quite the cut through. And I wonder if part of that is, from what you were telling me a little bit off air, I think this is a little bit of an interesting story to get into, partly just because, you know, I'm a bit of a history junkie and this is a little bit to do with the history of psychology in some ways. But it seems to me that Alice was, you know, it wasn't necessarily the most widely accepted figure, maybe even less so than Beck. And so I wonder if you could maybe just talk to us a little bit about that, about how maybe some of these ideas were maybe seen as a little bit, or maybe even controversial. Well, I think it was partly Ellis's style, which a number of people saw as somewhat abrasive. So Ellis was a New Yorker, and he had a particular style, uh, sometimes in-your-face style of expressing himself. And there's a famous video of him as one of three therapists working with a client called Gloria. And if you compare Albert Ellis's style in that famous video compared to, say, Fritz Perls of Gestalt Therapy fame or of Carl Rogers, a very genteel fellow, then Ellis could have seemed somewhat abrasive. And so that might have led to a number of people being more dismissive of the way that he said things. But when it boils down to it, Ellis was on about trying to make some of these ideas related to Stoic philosophy acceptable to other people. And he looked to do it in an entertaining way. And the way he used would have often gone down well in New York, for example, on Friday evenings for, I think, decades, but many years, he would offer free therapy with a crowd watching. So some volunteer would come out of the crowd and he'd offer them RET-style therapy in front of the group of people. And so that would have been probably an entertaining, dramatic style. And I can remember when I first saw him at a conference in Oxford, he had us singing these songs that he called rational emotive therapy songs. And they had ridiculous lyrics to different kinds of famous tunes. And it was a bit over the top, these lyrics about must to, should have to, and people are villains and all this kind of thing. And he had us all singing. You could see a number of people with more the 
British stiff upper lip were a bit uncomfortable in that kind of situation. I think the Australians were maybe singing with more gusto on average, but there was a variation in how people responded to this, if you like, somewhat brash, in-your-face style. But ultimately, it's the quality of the analysis, if you like, the thinking behind what Ellis was looking at, and he really did make it more accessible, picking up about how these exaggerated concerns about disapproval, failure, discomfort could really get in the way of our well-being, our happiness overall. And I think that was his lasting legacy. And, and just one other very brief anecdote on that. I know a fellow, a former conference friend, who saw Ellis in New York. He'd studied rational emotive therapy, looking forward to seeing his hero for a therapy session in New York when he's overseas, booked it in many months in advance, it was almost an anticlimax, a bit of a letdown. He said, Albert Ellis didn't seem so animated at the time at all. He was listening very intently. He gave a bit of feedback, that kind of thing. But the person said to me, just though he was almost more psychodynamic. So those roots that he'd been trained in, reflective listening, but not so strident in your face. And I think that my friend was quite surprised by that. But I think it shows that when people are portraying their therapy, say a pioneer or they've developed a therapy, they'll often present it in an exaggerated style, in their writing, in the way they demonstrate it. Often the great therapists have a more holistic, blended way of going about things. And clearly Ellis is someone who could adapt himself to the client that he saw at the time rather than being overly brash if you like if that wasn't really the person's style yeah well you know i certainly haven't seen as much as you but i know from what i've seen he is a real character alice and you know he does almost have that kind of you know new york manhattan kind of i'm walking here sort of attitude as well so so yeah i'll put up a couple of videos of alice i think that gloria video the video with him and gloria is actually on youtube i, I did see a little bit of that and interesting stuff and and look dad yeah Super interesting to be chatting about Alice and, and I think for me one of the interesting things about looking at people like Alice and Beck and, and anyone of influence in a, in a field or area, you do start to I think recognise the little ripple effects of their influence out. And, you know, whether it be, you know, the, the entrepreneurs these days who talk about psychology or whether it be this webinar I was on this morning, you know, one thing I found super interesting is to see just how much Ellis's fingerprints are on, you know, things everywhere today and, and on our way of thinking and on our, our approach to things. So it has been very interesting to look at, you know, his life and to get a little bit more from, you know, the way that he went about things and some of the innovations that he made. And, and yeah, a, a real character he seemed to be and even just the way that he talked about Freud, who I'm sure he would have had an immense amount of respect for, but maybe... Uh, in, in that almost caricatured way, they uh, maybe have uh, sharp elbows, the academics in that area, who, are, who, who will be remembered for hundreds of years to come. I'm sure it'll be a very competitive place to be. Yes, well, certainly Ellis, who I think he died about 10 years ago, left a wonderful legacy. Like Beck, did so much to shape modern psychotherapy, did so much to help people ease distress often in more practical and efficient ways, did so much to help people promote their sense of agency. And yes, his influence is very much riddled through modern psychotherapy.
Well, thanks so much for chatting with me about all this today, Dad. Again, we'll pop up everything at sykespeels.com.au like we always do. Give us a a like or a follow on Spotify or, or Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. And Dad, very much looking forward to the next episode, which will be our last one for the year. You know, we've ticked another year off the list. So uh, very much looking forward to a little break and maybe a bit of cricket over summer. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll very much get back into it next year. But yeah, one more to go. Excellent, Rowan. I look forward to that one to wind up our year.